this is uh, your first time, maybe second time. We've been doing a little study in the life of Paul, and we're going to continue and finish that this evening. You can take your Bible, and we're going to flip a lot tonight, depending on how far we get. But we started this study two weeks ago, looking into the life of Paul in anticipation of our study in Titus. Titus is a book that Paul wrote toward the end of his life. You'll find out exactly when as we talk this evening. Um, but to prepare us for that little book, I wanted to make sure we understood exactly who Paul was, what he accomplished in his life. And so a bit of a biography is what we've been doing of Paul. And we divided into three parts in his life. He was about 67, 68 years old when he passed away. And he can divide his life into those three segments, a mercenary, a missionary, and a martyr. There's a scholar by the name of Martin Hengel who said this about Paul. Paul is the first Christian theologian, missionary, and prolific author to the Gentiles. In a real sense, he founded Christian theology and brought the Gentile church into being. He further writes, knowledge of Saul the Jew is a precondition of understanding Paul the Christian. The better we know the former, him as a Jew, the more clearly we shall understand the latter. And so we've been trying to do that, understand his pre-Christian days in order to better understand his Christian days, and especially as it made him an author and a theologian and ultimately a martyr, as he leaves a legacy behind that is really unmatched and unparalleled in Christian history. Same author says, the success of the earliest Christian mission was unique in the ancient world. His mission, Paul's that is, was an unprecedented happening in church history. With Paul, for the first time, we find the specific aim of engaging in missionary activity throughout the world. And when we think about the world, there's a slide. Anya, are you ready for that Roman history, Roman Empire slide? Yes. Okay, perfect. So this gives you a sense of the Roman Empire, the purple that is, in Paul's time. I know it says second century, but this is pretty close to Paul's era as well. You can see the massive empire that it was. It was uh, the biggest empire up to that point in human history, consisted of about 60 million citizens. The city of Rome had about a million people in itself. And so Paul's goal was to take the gospel, if at all possible, to every part of the Roman Empire from west, from east to west. But as we study his life, especially the biographical components of it, my goal is not simply to give you history. I love history. I studied Roman history at UCLA. I can do this all day long. I love reading the same stuff over and over and over. Julius Caesar never changed, but I've read many books on him, and it's the same stuff. But I know that's not everybody's passion. The goal isn't for me to convey history to you as much as to make sure that we follow Paul's reasons for writing what he wrote, for doing what he did. There's a number of passages in the New Testament that Paul speaks of when he talks about how we should look at his writings and what we should do with them. There's a couple of verses in front of you. 1 Corinthians 4.16 says, I exhort you, be imitators of me. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me, just I am also of Christ. In Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Philippians 4.9, the things you have learned from, uh, learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things. And then 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3.9, in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. 
When Paul writes Romans in chapter 15, verse 4, he says this about the Old Testament. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and encouragement of scriptures, we may have hope. Now that's his perspective from the first century about the year 56, 57. As he looks back to the Old Testament, I'm reading those books from Genesis all the way to Malachi in order to have hope, to have perseverance and to have encouragement. That is the goal of even this study, that as we look back into the life of Paul, we have hope and encouragement and perseverance in our own faith as we hope to imitate him as far as he imitated Christ. And last week we talked about that he wasn't always Christ-like. Just think back to Acts chapter 15. So we began his story with the pre-Christian Paul, a mercenary who had one ambition and one zeal and one focus to destroy the church. Galatians 1.13, that's what he says about himself. I lived for the purpose of destroying the church. In Acts 26, verse 10, he says, when the votes were cast against Christians, I cast my vote in favor of their execution. The vocabulary that he uses about himself in multiple writings, including Acts, is one that is focused on efforts that are intended to lay lay to waste the entire Christian movement. Same vocabulary is used elsewhere in ancient writings to talk about burning down entire villages, destroying everything in its path. And so Paul picks up this aggressive, violent vocabulary to apply it to himself and says, this is what I live to do, completely destroy any existence of the Christian faith. Back then it was called the way. There's a Soviet leader by the name of Nikita Khrushchev who back in the 70s went on uh, live TV and said, I will show you the very last Christian in the Soviet Union before I execute him. He had the same ambition. He was a Soviet communist leader who was extremely evil. But if you compare Paul's statements about himself, he had the same ambition, completely destroy Christianity until Acts 9. When he meets Christ, he has a vision of Christ. He's radically converted. For three days, he's blinded. He has three days to contemplate his life. He's about 35 years old at that point. And he's trying to figure out exactly what has just happened. He's not eating. He's not drinking. He's just praying. He's trying to refocus his life in a different direction until Ananias shows up and calls him brother Paul. Jesus sent me here to regain your sight and then set you on a path towards evangelizing the world for Christ. And it says in verse 20 of chapter nine, immediately Paul began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. It didn't take him more than three days to figure out his new direction in life, his new focus in life. And for the next 23 years, he travels from one port city to another port city, from one cosmopolitan city to another from one synagogue to another synagogue. Nothing stopped him. We talked about the persecution that he endured last week. Every single city that we looked at ended up in him leaving that city because of opposition, because of hostility, sometimes being even so violently treated that he was left for dead, as in Lystra Derby. 
And yet Paul continued for 23 years faithfully preaching Christ from one end of the Roman Empire to the next. If you were to go back to that Roman Empire slide, I want to show you where he started. I have nothing to show that to you with. But as you look at the map, look at the bottom right corner where the purple and the blue greenish meet. You see that tip? That's basically Jerusalem. Okay, everybody there? Just look to the bottom where the blue and the purple meet right there. And so that's Jerusalem. And so Paul went from Jerusalem just a little bit north, about 90 miles, to Damascus to kill Christians in Damascus. And then he kind of went around, just followed the purple around the body of water, the Mediterranean Sea, and just kind of followed it all the way right there at the boot. Everybody should know Italy, right? Everybody knows about Italy. I was talking to my sister. Does everybody know Italy? That's the only place we all know in Europe, right? For sure. Uh, the boot, exactly. So that's Italy right there. There's a mouse hovering over Italy. Um, and so that's Rome is kind of in the middle on the left side of Italy. So just imagine him over those 23 years making his way up and down the coast from port to port, city to city. There's too many cities to list. And then he ends up in the prison in Rome. And that's where we ended last week. His third missionary journey ends in Jerusalem as he's trying to get to the Pentecost, to celebrate the Pentecost. And while he's there, he's going through his purification process. He meets with some of the apostles. He goes to the temple to worship and commotion breaks out and he is arrested. He's accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple where they did not belong. He's arrested and there's so much chaos that ultimately a Roman centurion steps in to protect him. Remember that? Now, he's about to beat him. And the rest of him, Paul says, hold on. I'm a Roman citizen. Do you have the right to do what you're about to do? And you remember the Roman, the Roman centurion became afraid because he just illegally exerted force upon Paul. And then they have this dialogue about how much did it cost you, right? And Paul said, like, I was born into it. like, oh man, I spent my fortune to become a Roman citizen because it was that valuable. I talked about the fact that Roman citizens had major protections, major uh, benefits, including appeal to the, the highest level of authority, which would have been the emperor at that point. So Paul is protected by this Roman centurion who steps in. And then as he speaks to the audience in Acts chapter 22, the people are still against him such that there is an assassination plot. A group of men decide to take an oath and not eat until they've killed Paul because of the damage he had done to the Jewish faith because he keeps on preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Paul's nephew finds out about this assassination plot, comes to the Roman centurion, tells him about it, and the Roman centurion decides to transfer Paul from Jerusalem up towards Caesarea. So just think back to the map. You're down at the bottom again. Right, He goes there in Jerusalem. He decides to take him up the coast to Caesarea, which is about 70 or so miles north on the coast. You should see some pictures of Caesarea so you can get a sense of what it looked like in Paul's day. Caesarea was important because it was the seat of the Roman uh, government in the first century. It's named after Caesar. So it's pretty obvious that this is the center of Roman power. On the, far, on the top right, you see that, that area. That would have been the palace where Pilate would have been stationed, for example, where Jesus and Pilate would have interacted. 
down it's very close to that kind of the, the the picture on the bottom right of the sea it's a beautiful city it's my favorite city in jerusalem it is in judea rather it's just a beautiful place herod is the one who built it in honor of caesar and he's the one who made one of the biggest and most successful ports in all of the ancient mediterranean world it became the hub of all commerce and of all trade and of all business about the time that Paul was born. Now today it looks more like the bottom left picture. Um, the bottom right picture, just so you can make some connections in Acts chapter 12. Do you remember when Herod Agrippa the first comes out, makes a speech and people start chanting the voice of a God and not man. Remember that story that happened in that Colosseum right there in the bottom right. It's in a theater that overlooks the Mediterranean sea. And that's when God struck him dead with a disease and he uh, passed away shortly after that day. But you have a lot of history taking place in Caesarea. That's where Paul gets transferred from Jerusalem, 70 or so miles north at night with 470 soldiers protecting him. Paul is like a narco trafficker being transferred from one prison to another. Imagine like the helicopters are flying and SWAT team. Everybody's trying to protect this horrible criminal. He's a criminal, most wanted man by the Jews because he's preaching the gospel. By being a Roman citizen, he gets that much protection. And so they make their way up and they ultimately land in Caesarea. That takes you to about Acts 25. From Acts 25 and 26 and 27, right before 27, Paul spends two years in Caesarea. That's your bottom bullet point right there. For two years, he would spend in Caesarea under the, in, uh, under the oversight of Felix, governors Felix and Festus, and then ultimately Herod Agrippa II. And they all listened to him about Christ. It's, it's fun to read Acts 25 and 26. And every single time the story ends with, this guy's not guilty. I don't know what to do with him, but he's not guilty. And so the first individual, Felix, rather, he's the governor, the Roman governor. He is transferred out. Then Festus comes into power and he's waiting to be bribed by Paul to be set free. Paul doesn't bribe him. So he keeps him in prison for two years. And then Herod Agrippa II takes over. And you know that story of Bernice and all that. So that all takes place right up to the end of Acts 26. And multiple times in that time period, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. You can't hand me over back to the people that are accusing me of committing crimes against the Jewish faith. I'm a Roman citizen. I want to be tried like a Roman citizen. And so he appeals to Caesar. And so the end of that episode says, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar, you shall go. And that's 26, 32. He would have been set free, it actually says, if he did not appeal to Caesar. But that request required them to transfer him to Rome. Caesar at this point is Nero. So Acts 27 is the journey to Rome. It would have taken seven to eight months for him to fulfill what's in Acts chapter 27. Because the journey would have been in the fall, about September of the year 60 or so. And by the time he gets there, uh, it was really dangerous to travel in that time of the year. You know about the shipwreck that takes place in Acts 27 proving how dangerous the waters were. And so finally, after seven or eight months or so, early spring, they land in Rome. And that takes us to the beginning of Acts chapter 28. In Acts 28, 
Paul is under house arrest. He has to pay his own way for rent. That's in verses 16 and 30 of chapter 28. He's guarded by a soldier in verse 16. And he welcomes guests in verse 30. It says that of Acts 28. He's able to take guests in and converse with them. And we said this toward the end of last week, that Paul is collecting all of these individuals around himself, preaching the gospel, such that even the most important Jewish leaders in the city of Rome hear about Paul and they make an appointment with him at his house as he's under house arrest to talk about Jesus as the Messiah. And that story ends with Paul quoting Isaiah chapter 6 because they refuse to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And it says from from, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive because your heart is dull. You can't hear with uh, with your ears. Your eyes have been closed. And in verse 28, he says this, let it be known that salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And so because of that, they get upset and they depart. But what Luke writes at the very end of that chapter is he continued to preach the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered for two years. That's Acts 28. And that ends that period of Paul's life, his three missionary journeys. Now, what happens after that? Because if you read Acts 28, you've got a lot of New Testament left, right? And so we've tried in our last two uh, discussions to show how those books fit into the history in the book of Acts. And so we've kind of looked at what chapter has which book fit into it. But we also have what's called the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And we have to figure out how they fit in because the description of Paul's ministry in those three letters cannot fit easily and neatly into the book of Acts. And so the question is, who wrote them? Some very, very critical liberal scholars would say Paul didn't write them. They were written much later after his life, decades after his life, perhaps even into the second century. And so they're non-Pauline because we can't reconcile the content of those letters with the book of Acts. The other option is to actually say when Paul is in prison for two years, the story just doesn't end. For two years, he's preaching the gospel uh, uh, unhindered with all openness. So what's next? It's like, come on, you know, give me the, 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 the end of the story. Conclude it for me. Well, church history helps us because it tells us that Paul was released from prison. And then he had another five or six years of ministry. After that, that's what we want to talk about this evening. The reason that we know he was busy while he was in prison, not only because he was preaching the gospel unhindered, but because when you look at the books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, you realize that in every single book, Paul talks about his imprisonment. And if you look at the book of Philippians, for example, so I told you you're going to flip. It's time to flip. Let's go. All right, get your Bibles, get your fingers ready or you're scrolling, whatever you're going to do. Because I want to show you how scholars reconstruct Paul's life after Acts chapter 28. So in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says this in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, 
that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, that is the secret police of the emperor, and to everyone else. Most of the men, uh, most of the brothers trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And then he says in verse 17, some proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Then after he says this, look, I'm preaching the gospel. It's being heard even in the imperial palace. That's how influential he was for two years. Now, the prison that he was in, this house, the rest, we have no idea where it was. We don't know if it was down the hill from the palatian, a palace, or somewhere else. We don't know it for sure, but we know that it was in the city of Rome, and people in the imperial palace began to hear about it. And this is what Paul then says, this super famous verse that we all know. Verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I'm to live in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know what to choose. In other words, if I stay living, I'm going to continue to minister for the the gospel. Verse 23, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, that is much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So in other words, in those two years of imprisonment in Rome, Paul's appeal finally made it to the, uh, to the table of Emperor Nero. We don't know whether he met him face to face or if some administrator reviewed his case and essentially gave notice to Paul that he's going to be released. Because that is exactly what the verse says, 25. I'm convinced I will remain and continue with you all. So he's thinking, I might be killed, but it looks like I'm going to be uh, released from prison and I'll continue to minister to you and for the joy of your faith. So based on this, and like I said, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, the other three letters all refer to his imprisonment, which means while he was in prison, he wasn't just evangelizing, whoever would listen. He was actually writing these four letters. And the content that overlaps between certain of these letters indicates that he was writing them at about the same time. And it's in Philippians chapter 4, writing to the church that was so affectionate toward him, so sacrificial toward him. It says in verse 16 of chapter 4, that more than once you met my needs. In other words, they sent money to him repeatedly to support him in ministry. But in verse 11 of the same chapter, chapter 4, he says this, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Paul said that statement, or wrote it rather, in prison. It's, it's nice to be able to be content when there's nobody after you. When you're living freely in LA and you can get whatever you want at any time as long as you have a job. But not when you're in prison. Even if it is under house arrest, you still have no freedom. You're still waiting for that final decision from the emperor. Well, Paul ultimately is released. And after 25 years of preaching Christ, I said that he was born, if you go back to the first slide, he's born in the year one. 
converted in the year 35. The imprisonment ends in the year 62. Go to the next slide. And so if it ends in the year 62, we now have to figure out how to fit 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus before he is executed. So because of all that and a little bit of help from church history, here's how we can figure out what happened after Acts 28, which takes us to our fourth missionary journey. The years are 62 to 67, perhaps into the year 68. In Romans chapter 15, so go ahead and flip. I'm not going to keep telling you to flip. I need to hear the pages moving. All right. Romans chapter 15 in verse 20. Paul speaks about his ambition. I've kind of made it easy for you. It's on the screen if you don't want to move your fingers. Verse 20. I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named so that I would not build on another man's foundation. That goes back to his desire to preach Christ everywhere. In verse 24, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there for you, by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. In verse 28, therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by my way to Spain. The other place he's referring to, put my seal on the fruit, verse 25 says that's Jerusalem. So he's making his way to Spain via Jerusalem, via Rome. When he writes Romans, he hadn't been to Rome yet. We know that from chapter 1, and we know that from chapter 15. He hadn't seen them yet, but he's looking forward to spending some time with them and encouraging them and to be encouraged by them. So we have this clear expectation, uh, probably... Uh, the book of Romans was written about the year 56 from Corinth. And so just imagine that. It would have been about six years later when he actually starts his journey to Spain. Well, because of those two imprisonments. Four years of that was spent in prison. So he says this, I want to get to Spain. If you go back to the previous slide, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, when he is now just weeks before his execution. He reflects on his life and he says, I've finished the course. In other words, the implication from that is that I've accomplished what I've set out to accomplish. If he wanted to get to Spain, the implication is that I got to Spain. I did exactly what I was hoping to get to. Now go back to the Roman Empire slide because I want to show you how far he got in his ministry. So remember, he starts out at the bottom right, green and blue, or green and purple meat, all the way around. And that's Spain on the far left, that big old chunk right there, the big old land close to Africa, that's Spain. So imagine he crossed the entire, not entire, but most of the Roman empire, taking the gospel and he finally gets to Spain before he writes second Timothy. This is where church history is helpful because what we learn from some of the writers in church history, they tell us that Paul actually did make it to Spain. There's a third century writer Eusebius, and this is what he wrote. Festus was sent by Nero to be Felix's successor. Remember that? That's the time that he was in Caesarea, that, uh, that uh, imprisonment. Under him, Paul was sent bound to Rome. That's Acts uh, 27. Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, brought 
his history to a close at this point after stating that Paul spent two whole years at Rome as a prisoner at large and preached the word of God without restraint. We read all that. Thus, after he had made his defense, it is said that he, the apostle, was sent again upon the ministry of preaching. That's what I'm talking about. He was released and went back into ministry and that upon coming to the same city a second time, Rome, he suffered martyrdom in this imprisonment, he wrote his second epistle to Timothy. That's how we found out, find out when second Timothy was written. The second time he's in Rome, uh, in prison. Next slide. Clement of Rome writes the following. Paul, seven times he was in bonds. He was exiled. He was stoned. He was a herald both in the East and in the West. He gained the noble fame of his faith. He taught righteousness to all the world. And when he had reached the limits of the West, Spain, because remember, that's the farthest point in the Roman Empire. That's a no. This is the end of the world for them. He gave his testimony before the rulers and thus passed from the world and was taken up into the holy place, the greatest example of endurance. So you look at that and you realize that Paul did make it to Spain. When is the question? How do we figure that out? Well, here's the best way for us to understand exactly what happened after Acts 28 and before Paul is executed. So I just read to you Philippians 1.19, that Paul wanted to get to Philippi and to see the people that had so faithfully supported him. And he says, I will come to you. I'm going to spend some time with you. And so what we can conclude is that because of what he says to the Philippians, and that being the last letter that he wrote from the prison in Rome in the year 62 or so, he must have gone initially to Philippi. So that would have been his first stop, probably in early summer, late spring, early summer of the year 62. The area that he would then transfer to after that is called the Lycus Valley. You can see a picture of the Lycus Valley. You can see kind of where it belongs in the Roman Empire. So you can see that that's Turkey or Asia Minor. You see Italy right there in the top left. You can kind of orient yourself. So Paul from Philippi would have then gone to the Lycus Valley. In Philemon chapter 1, verse 22, he basically says that much to us. In Philemon 1, 22, at the same time, prepare a lodging for me, for I hope through your prayers I will be given to you. So that's where that would be, in, Philipp- in, uh, in um, uh, Philemon's home. So he goes to the Lycus Valley and History says that he started the seven churches, six of them, because one was already started, Ephesus already existed, that you read about in Revelation 2 and 3. Remember those? Now, here's the sad part. Paul starts those churches, if you go back to the chronology, between 62 and uh, 66. Okay, so there's a period of time that he does this. Let's just say 62 to 64, because then he heads to Spain. Revelation is written in the year 95 or so. Within 30 years, of those churches being started by the apostle Paul, one of them was Ephesus. Ephesus was pastored by Paul, then Timothy, then John the apostle. But by the year 95, 30 years, not even a full generation, they are nearly spiritually dead. If you've read Revelation 2 and 3, you know the call to all of those churches. Repent, 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 or I will spit you, spit you out. You will not receive the crown of life. I know that you've been faithful to listen to good preaching, to fight heresy, to serve the Lord. 
but if Ephesian church, you've lost your first love. What we have to understand is this. Faithfulness in the past is no guarantee of faithfulness in the future. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves regularly to see if you are in Christ. If Christ is in you, if you're in the faith. And I'm not trying to scare you to see if you're a Christian or not. What I'm trying to say is this. We have church history demonstrating to us that you could have the best pastor on the planet, the Apostle Paul. And you can then be succeeded by Timothy, another fantastic person if you read your New Testament. And then John the Apostle, the one whom Jesus loved. You've got some massive, massive ability there in pastoring, in writing, in shepherding. And yet that church lost its first love for Christ. The application for us is this. Make sure that you're always examining your heart and your soul and your relationship with Christ. Just because you go to Grace Church under John MacArthur, it doesn't mean that you will always be faithful to Christ. And again, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to say, evaluate your life on a regular basis. And so should I continually because church history demonstrates to us the disaster that can happen where Christ says, I will spit you out. I wish you weren't even a Christian. I wish you were cold if you're going to be lukewarm. So in those years, 62 to 64 or so, Paul starts those other six churches, all but Ephesus. And in that time, he writes 1 Timothy. So he goes to Philippi, he starts those churches, and then he heads over to Spain. After he goes to Spain, one Scholar says this, if he had failed to reach Spain, the words to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 7, would not be as meaningful as if he had reached Spain. However, which is, I finished the course. That's the words he's talking about. However, if Paul did reach Spain, these words are truly significant for they indicate to us that Paul in his lifetime reached out to all of the boundaries of the then known world with the gospel. Most likely means that he traveled 10,000 miles in his entire ministry. He started ministry in the year 35. He would end it in the year 68. About 33 years of ministry, traveling 10,000 miles. After that, he would then write the pastoral epistles, specifically Titus and ultimately 2 Timothy. So after he writes Titus, we know that as you look at some passages in Titus and in 2 Timothy and in 1 Timothy, you see that Paul, after Spain, heads over to Miletus and he leaves Trophimus there. 2 Timothy 4.20 tells us this. He leaves him there because he was sick. Then Paul goes to Ephesus. And then he meets this guy named Alexander the coppersmith. And in 2 Timothy 4.14, he says, he did me much harm. So there's some kind of a conflict that takes place in Ephesus after Spain between Alexander, the coppersmith, and Paul. Then Paul leaves Ephesus and goes to Troas and leaves his coat and his books there. And in 2 Timothy 4.13, he says, bring me my coat and my books. He's writing to Timothy. He hopes he'll visit him before he's executed. So this is now the spring of 67. Okay, so we can see that as he visits all of those cities, Ephesus, Nicopolis, Macedonia again. And in that time, he writes Titus. And you know, Titus is all about, as we began studying that book, it's all about Paul leaving Titus on the island of Crete 
in order, verse 5 says, that he would set in order what is left and appoint elders in every city. So in other words, Paul started the ministry, but he had to leave. And so he put Titus there to finish the work and to make sure that there were elders and leaders in the churches on the island of Crete. Paul then would make his way to Greece. And at the same exact time, Nero, the emperor that had that he had appealed to last time, is in Greece traveling as an artist, as a musician. Nero fancied himself to be a fiddle player. And so he decided to go on tour. While the empire is struggling, he decides to go on tour. And so he goes to Greece. I mean, you know the Greeks, right? Greek oratory, Greek plays, drama. So he goes to Greece. He hopes that people enjoy his performances there. In fact, some ancient writers say that as, Paul, as uh, Rome was burning, Nero was playing his fiddle, watching Rome burn because he set it on fire to build himself a massive house called the Golden House. You can go see it today, right in the heart of Rome. And so Paul and Nero reconnect, good old friends. They saw each other before, right? Come on, they've been together in Rome. So by this point, Nero's crazy. The first time that Paul and Nero met, Roman historians say that Nero started out his career as Caesar, as the emperor, well, the first five years of his life as the emperor were good. Lots of good administrative policies were set in place. He was advancing uh, the, the, the influence of Rome and so on. But then something happened and snapped. He kills his tutor, Seneca. He kills his mom, his wife. He goes after the closest people in his life. And then he goes on tour, kind of cleans house and then you know, leaves the city. So by the time he meets Paul the second time, he rearrests him, brings him back to Rome. And that takes us to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, and you are right there toward the 67, 68 time period. By this point, I already said, he's leaving all of his disciples all over the different cities in the Roman world. And he says this in 2 Timothy 4, 11. He's writing to Timothy, only Luke is with me. Why? Well, because look at verse 10. Demas, having loved his present world, has deserted me and went to Thessalonica. We talked about Thessalonica being a very cosmopolitan, thriving party city on the coast. And it was a place to be. And so Demas chose this world over the gospel. Crescens has gone to Galatia. So not all of these people who left necessarily left for bad reasons. Demas did, but Crescens just went to Galatia. We don't know why. Titus is in Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me, which is significant. Luke has been accompanying Paul all over the book of Acts. The we passages. If you read Acts, just kind of in one sitting, you'll keep seeing we, we, we. That's Luke writing on behalf of Paul and his associates. Every single time Paul traveled, there's at least eight people mentioned with him. He always had a posse. He had, you know, he had a good value for himself. You have to have an entourage. And so Paul had people traveling with him. Luke is one of them. So now that he's in prison in Rome, once again, only Luke is with me. And Paul says, pick up Mark and bring him with you for he's useful to me for service. We talked about that story last time where there was a conflict in Acts 15. Thankfully, it was reconciled. And toward the end of his life, Paul wants him back. Paul is 66 years old, has traveled about 10,000 miles in his life in those 33 or so years of ministry. And just as a recap from 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the book of Acts, this is what has characterized his life. He was arrested. 
stoned, shipwrecked, beaten five times, 39 times each time. Three times he was beaten with rods on top of that. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was sleepless many times. He was exposed to the heat and the cold. He was deserted by his disciples. He was undermined by the Jews in almost every single city that he went to start a church. He was accused of immorality and greed by his own church plants. And many times he was not even understood or supported by the apostles. And we know that Paul also had moments of despair and discouragement. I've talked about this before. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse eight says, we don't want you to be unaware brothers of our affliction that came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so so great a peril of death and he will deliver us again. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. So there was a period in Asia where Paul was extremely, extremely discouraged such that he didn't want to live anymore. That's what he says in that verse. So we know that his life of 33 years in ministry was characterized mostly by preaching the gospel, planting churches, making tents, and being persecuted from city to city. And now he's awaiting Nero's execution. Church tradition says that he would spend nine months in this prison. And the prison is called the Mamertine prison. You can see a picture of it. It's really close to the center of Rome by the Colosseum, just a few steps away. It's a tiny cell that would fit about two people comfortably. That's modern pictures there. And in this city, in this cell rather, you have Paul and Peter spending time together as prisoners. It means that all of his appeals, legal appeals, would have been exhausted as he awaits death. Well, it says in church history that In about the year 67, he was executed on the third milestone on the Ostian way that leads to Rome and Ostia. I've been in that area. It's about 14 miles just west of Rome. And they built a church in honor of him after that. And Paul's life ends in a way that is somewhat anticlimactic. He's beheaded by a crazy emperor in a prison that was invented and has been used since about 600 BC for the worst offenders, the worst criminals, the traitors, the rebels to the Roman Empire, those that Rome conquered and they wanted to torture them because there were such successful generals against the Roman Empire and they tortured them. And that prison, there is a passageway where basically drains the corpses into the outside river as if to send them to Hades. That was kind of the mythical uh, imagery surrounding that prison and that little plaque indicates some famous prisoners who stayed there. So as you reflect on his life, it takes us to the year 67, 68. Everything that he had done is complete. If you know a 67, 68 year old man, just imagine that individual. That's Paul. Now, Paul as an individual accomplished a lot. And so for the next few minutes, I'd like to just reflect on Paul as a missionary. This is kind of the summary for us, Paul as a missionary. First of all, Paul preferred major cities strategically because he believed the return on that investment, the multiplication factor of going to a big city where ports, where people would meet at the port 
would then potentially take the gospel to other parts of the empire faster. Secondly, he would go into synagogues first. We know that because you read the book of Acts and he's going to a synagogue. He debates with the Jews if Jesus is the Messiah until somebody kicks him out. So he had the same strategy because he wanted to save his people. How badly did he want to save his people? Well, in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, this is what he says. I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, I would give up my own salvation if it meant the salvation of the Jewish people. That's how committed he was to preaching the gospel, even being willing, obviously hyperbolically speaking, to go to hell. But that's his commitment. That's why he went to synagogues first until he was rejected. And then he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 13, there's a fascinating situation where Paul is preaching to the Jews Verse 44, Acts 13, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembles to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. They were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Verse 47, he quotes Isaiah and he says, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. So this keeps happening. He goes to the Jews first in the synagogues. They reject him. He turns to Gentiles. The Gentiles repent and rejoice because they've been selected or predestined and elected elect for the gospel. Third, the character, what characterizes Paul's ministry as a missionary is the fact that he always had people he would invest into. He always had, as I said, an entourage, disciples. A hundred or so people are mentioned in the life of Paul in the New Testament. He's constantly meeting people. He's constantly training people. Sometimes he becomes partners with like-minded traders like Priscilla and Aquila, also tent makers. He connects with them in Rome and Corinth, Nephesus. They church plant in those places alongside Paul. They mentor other people like Apollos. And so there's partnerships that are formed. Really, if you think about your life as a Christian, wouldn't you say that the most intimate friendships that you have have been forged in the context of ministry? Where you're working till 2 a.m. during Shepherd's Conference week, doing something and you're laughing uncontrollably because you haven't slept for three days. And you're eating old pizza and whatever else. But those friendships and those relationships bond you, not just for this life, not just for this year, not just for this church, but for eternity. And if you keep up and maintain those relationships, you're living life like the Apostle Paul. You have bonds that you have formed and you have partners and disciples and people who have influenced you. You have influenced them for the sake of the gospel. And Paul says that brought him joy. Philippians 2, 17 and 18. He says, even if I'm being poured out for the sake of the gospel, like an altar, take an animal, sacrifice it, pour out all of its guts. Everything is coming off. Everything is spent. In 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he says, I have spent myself and I will continue to spend myself for your faith. He says, if that's the kind of life, life I live, next verse, I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice. And I'm asking you to rejoice with me. In other words, get involved in the same kind of ministry. Spend your life for the gospel, for the advance of the kingdom of God. 
even if it means rejoicing in your suffering, Colossians 1.24, because the church is being advanced. Paul is a missionary characterized by going to major cities, synagogues, partnership with people, and suffering for the gospel. But Paul was also an author. That's the second legacy that he leaves behind. He's an author and theologian. Spend this afternoon thinking about what would happen to our faith if we removed all of Paul's writings from the New Testament. How would that impact our theology? How would that impact our knowledge of Christ and the doctrines that we hold dearly as Christians? Matt Nerdo helped me figure this out. If you removed all of Paul's writings from the New Testament, 22% of the New Testament would be gone. If you add Hebrews to that, and I'm convinced Paul wrote Hebrews, even if you disagree with me, 26% of the New Testament would be gone. Okay, just go every fourth page out. That's what you need to do. Now, Matt and I were texting and Luke Acts is written by Luke, but Luke spent his whole life with Paul. Guess who influenced Paul? Luke? Not a trick question. Paul. <laughs> if you take out Luke Acts, half of the New Testament would be gone. So just take half of the New Testament, just rip it out. You have the gospels left. I love the gospels, but that's all you got. And then you've got some of the general epistles left. So at the end, Peter, James, Relation, John's writings, and so on. But it gives you a sense that at the very least, 22% is gone and potentially up to 50% would be gone. So let me show you how Paul, as an author and as a theologian, impacts our understanding of the Christian faith. Theology proper is the study of the Godhead, who God is. Okay, so you've got those theologies that are the categories. Usually in geology, demonology go together. So whenever you think about the categories of theology, it's usually 10. But I split them up because I want to show you distinctly how Paul influences both of them. So you can listen, but you may want to flip to some passages because I hope to overwhelm you and to make you thankful for Paul, who wrote at the very least 22% of your Bible, New Testament rather, while he was in prison, well, seven times, while he was traveling 10,000 miles by foot or by ship, while he was constantly persecuted. He didn't write this in a mansion enjoying the Roman villa life. He did this while he was in prison or when he was moving from city to city, church planting and working with his own hands as a full-time career person. You guys, we have to get that. That's why I went through that list of what happened to him in persecution. Because in the middle of all that, this is what he did for the Christian faith. In regards to theology proper, the Godhead, who is God? Romans eleven thirty six. He says, from him and through him and to him are all things. That verse would be gone. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. First Timothy six sixteen. He alone possesses immortality and dwells in approachable, in an approachable light whom no man has seen or can see. In Romans 8, he talks about that we have been adopted by the Father and we call him Abba. And we're able to pray to him because we are his children. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, he talks about the general relation that comes to us through creation. And we know the attributes of God. 
So you take out that passage. We always go to Romans 1 these days because we're trying to explain all the evil that's happening in our society. Take out that chapter. Bibliology, the second category, this is the study of the Bible. Inspiration. What's the most famous verse about the inspiration of Scripture? 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, right? All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable. Take that verse out. You have not... That verse is gone if you take out Paul's writings. Inerrancy. 2 Corinthians 6-7, which means the word of God has no error. 2 Corinthians 6-7, it says the word is truth. Colossians 1-5 says the word of the truth is the gospel. How about the authority of scripture? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says the word of God has come to you. It is not the word of man. In 2 Timothy 3-16, the second half of that, uh, that passage is... It's given to us, scripture is inspired by God. It's proof, uh, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the men of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. You're always ready and you're completely ready for every good work. That's the authority of scripture. In Titus chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says this, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In other words, what he told Titus to tell the churches on Crete, he says, this is authoritative. This is coming from the word of God. The third category, anthropology, the study of man. In Acts chapter 17, this is worth looking at. Acts chapter 17, our pastor preached this on Easter weekend. And this is what he does on Mars Hill in Athens as he tries to evangelize these philosophers and people who worship various deities. He says this in verse 24. I'm here to tell you about the unknown God. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives life to all people and breath and all things. And he made from, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they would see God if perhaps they may grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and exist. So in other words, Paul says this, you want to understand anthropology, who is man? Our existence goes back to the God of creation. In him we live and move and literally are. We are. It doesn't make sense grammatically, but that's the best way to communicate that you have no existence apart from God. Now take that out and you realize your anthropology becomes wonky. He goes into 1 Corinthians 11 verse 7 when he says that man is the image of God. Yes, we know that from Genesis 1, but Paul reaffirms that for us in the New Testament. In regards to anthropology for men's and women's roles, we know that's a big deal in the New Testament. The roles that God has designed for men and women in the church, in the family. All that is Pauline. How about the resurrection? That's anthropology. The fact that Philippians chapter 3 verse 22 gives us an explanation of what will happen once we are glorified. He says, Paul says, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things for himself. So in other words, he's saying our body will be fully transformed to the likeness of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that is going to happen very, very fast. 
Verse 52, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable, this physical body, must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. That's Paul's explanation of what will happen to us when we see Jesus face to face in the twinkling of an eye, we will be completely transformed. Until that moment, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, we are groaning. We're suffering, and yet we can't compare the suffering of this age to the glory that will be revealed to us. All of creation is groaning in the next couple of verses. Until the sons of man, God, us, verse 19, will be fully revealed. In other words, fully transformed into the glorious bodies that we'll have. You guys, that's Pauline anthropology, giving us hope and a preview that no matter how sick you are, no matter how frustrated you are with your body for whatever reason, and we are all defective in this world. Let's just admit that. Even if you're the best athlete, you still have physical issues. Because everybody has been affected by sin. But it gives us hope to know that one day, as Pastor John said Easter weekend, God will create a new body for us that will endure forever, either for heaven or hell. And Paul gives us that. That takes us to hamartiology. Hamartia is the Greek word for sin, the study of sin. Well, of all the passages to think about sin, it's Romans 1 and 2, isn't it? We talked about Romans 1, where God is giving people over to their lusts, to their desires. Three times it says God gave them over to degrading passions, to lusts of their hearts, to impurity. Verse 28 says to a depraved mind such that they are completely, they've completely lost their senses doing things that are not proper. We see this happening in front of us with the LGBTQ movement. And they force, verse 32, other people to appreciate them, celebrate them, and approve of them, verse 32. And he says in chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's no one who does good. No, there is not even one. So in other words, Paul tells us there is such a thing as total depravity. Not inside every human being, but holistically on the planet, affecting all of creation. To make it super simple, just look at verse 23 of Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are unable to please God the way he created us to please him. And in Romans 5.12, he says, Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And in verse 18, he said, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's Adam, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. He's talking about how sin entered this world through Adam and Eve. And it's spread through everybody, but Jesus undoes all of that because his obedience at the cross reverses the curse. It changes us and it doesn't simply take us back to the state of Adam. It takes us to the state of Christ. It doesn't say you're going to get a new body like Adam's, right? You're going to get a new body like Christ's. That's elevation. That's promotion. 
That's better than going back to the Garden of Eden status. Well, that takes us to soteriology because all that is dependent on salvation. Soter is the Greek word for savior. The study of salvation, soteriology is the study of salvation. And we know it all begins with the order of salvation in Romans 8. I know I'm stuck in Romans, but it's easier here. I don't want, you guys are refusing to flip. I'm not hearing any pages move. So <laughs> Romans 8 verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We're talking about calling. We're talking about God's purpose from eternity past. For those whom he foreknew intended to have a personal relationship with. That's the meaning of that word. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's what I just said. We're going to be like Christ so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. He would be the chief and the elite one. And these whom he predestined to be like Christ, he also called. Whom he called, these he justified, declared them not Guilty because Jesus took our sin upon himself. And these whom he justified, these he glorified. That's the plan of God in short, that we go from sin to ultimate glorification, the order of salvation. Election appears to us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Predestination in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, speaks to God's predestining work for us in verse 22. What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's those who are going to hell. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared before him for glory. In other words, God prepared you for glory even before you repented because he knew that your destination as a future believer is an eternal existence with him. In Ephesians 2, he'll explain how that happens. Verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. That's regeneration. That's God infusing life to you. John 6, 63 says, the spirit gives life. That's the infusion of new life, being born again. And Paul says that happens because God made you alive. It also means, as I just said, you have been justified. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24 Paul says this, after he says everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. Justification is not earned. Just read that first part of the verse. It's a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly on the cross as a satisfaction or propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. He was waiting for you to repent. Second Peter 3, 9 is a perfect verse for that. For in the demonstration, I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what that means. Until Jesus came, you could accuse God of being unjust. 
because he kept on passing over, ignoring the sins of the people. Century after century after century after century. He said in Genesis, if you sin, you die. Remember that? Well, people didn't die for centuries, millennia. So you could say God is being unjust. He lied in the garden. But what he says is God passed over those sins in patience. And when Jesus died on the cross, that vindicated God's justice, that he would bring about the death of someone for the sins. How do you do that? How do you justify God in all of the sins of all of the people before the cross? That's millennia and millennia of sins, right? How do you explain that? Revelation 13 verse 8 explains that for us. John says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. That's the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And the original says, before the foundation of the world. The reason that God is able to apply the death of Christ to people from Genesis 3 until the cross is because in God's plan, the lamb was slain before the first human was born, before the foundation of the world. And that gives God vindication and gives him justice. And we know that is justification by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We also have the imputation, which means our sins are placed on Christ and his righteousness is given to us. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. That's the substitution that takes place. We're also adopted. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says this, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. In verse Uh, Chapter four, verse six, because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. We're also united with Christ over a hundred times in the New Testament. Paul says we are united with Christ. Matt Nerdle is doing his PhD on that topic. We expect great things from you, Matt. Come back and preach it one day. That leads us to sanctification. Hang on, we're almost there. Sanctification. Pastor John said the greatest verse in the New Testament on sanctification is, not what you're thinking, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Anybody thinking that? See? Yes? Oh, okay, you're right. 2 Corinthians 3.18, check it out. We all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. In other words, we are looking into the face of Christ and that continuous looking into the face of Christ transforms us into his likeness. And we know that Christ is in scripture. What that means is you look into scripture and that transforms you into the likeness of Christ. And Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is the one who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's the one who's giving you the desire and he's actually making it happen in your life until the moment of glorification. That's all salvation. There's so much more moving us to Christology. 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In other words, he says there's only one savior for all of humanity. In Ephesians 1, 7, he says, in him is the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions. In Colossians chapter 1, probably the most epic passage on Christ in Paul's writings, Colossians chapter 1, in verse 15, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, he's God, he's representing God, he's the chief of creation, for by him all things were created, in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, the supernatural that is. All things have been created through him and for him. So he's the agent of creation. Verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he's sustaining all of creation. Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. So he's the superior one of the church. He's the Lord of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Verse 19 says, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. In other words, he embodies the attributes of God. He is God, the very God, truly God. Through him, it was pleasing to God to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That's Jesus, the one who created everything, the one who's above everything, the one who reconciles you, the one who sustains everything so that he would come to have first place in everything. And if he's not functioning in that way in your life, then that should lead you to repentance because that's why you were created and that's why you were saved. That's why I was saved to make sure that Jesus is the supreme one in everything that we do in your job, in your friendships, in your leisure, in your vacations, in how you spend your time at home or in public or at church, how you minister in the church. All that is intended to make Christ the preeminent one through you. That's Colossians 1. And God is so committed to that because in Philippians chapter 2, We read about the humiliation of Christ. Verse 6 says, Even though he was God, he existed in the form of God just as God, equal with God, verse 6, but he emptied himself, taken on the form of a bondservant, and he became made in the likeness of man, found as an appearance of a man, being humbled to the point of death, even death on the cross. And God's commitment, verse 9, he exalted him highly. And gave him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Colossians 1, 18 parallels this verse. This is why God did that. That's why he sent him to this earth. That's why Jesus came. So that ultimately he would be the preeminent one. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 3. Which leads us to the work of the Spirit, pneumatology. 1 Corinthians 2 says that the Spirit opens up your mind to understand Scripture. That's His job. The very end of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. In Romans chapter 8, it says the Spirit is interceding for you as you're praying. In other words, He listens, He takes your prayers, He purifies them from all the sinful desires and makes them appropriate to God. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16, all the way through verse 24, Paul says that if you walk by the Spirit, you will never fulfill the desire of the flesh. 
In other words, the way we defeat sin and temptation is simply by walking according to the Spirit. And this is how you know if you're walking according to the Spirit in verse 22. Your life is characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if that's your life, and if you belong to Christ in verse 24, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now, if we live by the Spirit, let's also walk by the Spirit. In other words, it's one thing to be made alive by the Spirit, giving you a spiritual existence, new life. It's another thing to walk by the Spirit. That's obedience. And he gives you the gifts that you are to use to edify the saints. And you're sealed by the Spirit according to Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4 for the day of glorification. The way you know that you're actually going to be glorified is because the Spirit of God is with you. That's how you know. It's a promise. Paul speaks about angels in Galatians 3. He says that they were participants in giving of the law back in Exodus 20. That's Paul. That's the only place you'll find that. Galatians 3 verse 19. In 1 Corinthians eleven ten, he says that they participate in worship in the church. There's angels all around. That's what that verse says. They are participants in worship. 1 Corinthians eleven ten. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says when Jesus comes back to rapture the church, the sound of an archangel, the trumpet of an archangel will be heard. So now you've got an angel announcing the coming of Christ to take his church back to be with him. Which takes us to demonology. Satan is the enemy and the tempter of God's people. We know that from scripture. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were children of wrath. We were under the influence of the prince of the power of the air who's working in the sons of disobedience even now. That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says that Satan has blinded our eyes to the glory of Christ. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, he says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive people. That's demonology. Of course, we overcome that by Armor of God, that's Ephesians 6, 11, uh, verse 10, all the way down to verse 20. That's how we fight demons and Satan with the word of God. And the hope and the promise is in Romans 16, 20. God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. There's certain victory that's promised. And two more. Ecclesiology, that's the study of the church. The church has many members, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. The church is the pillar and the support of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 3.15. The church was purchased by the precious blood of Christ. That's Acts 20.28. The church is God's precious possession. Ephesians 1.14. And in the church, we have the unification of all the ethnicities and the genders. And none is more superior than the other. That's what Galatians 3.28 says. That's what Ephesians 2 says. And by the Spirit, we have all been given a spiritual gift to serve one another. And the sacraments of communion and baptism, guess where they appear? In 1 Corinthians 11 and in Romans 6, verse 4. In other words, our understanding of baptism and communion comes from Paul. And finally, our future eschatology, the study of the end times, the coming of, of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4, the second coming of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5. The eternal hell that awaits those who disobey God in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. 
That's all in the writings of Paul. And here is the climactic passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. When he abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that is abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. When he says all things are put in subjection under his feet, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things under the subjection to him. In other words, God is not subject to Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. Jesus will recognize God to be all in all in verse 28. The entire Godhead, the Trinity will ultimately reign. That's the end. That's the future glory. So as you think about our doctrine, every single doctrine, and this is only a selection, is impacted if you were to get rid of Paul. Imagine if Paul never existed. From a mercenary to a martyr, writing at least 22%, if not 50%, influencing and shaping of the New Testament. Writing all of those passages in order to equip and edify the saints that he personally knew. Not thinking about you and me, but recognizing that he wrote God's word in order to strengthen the brothers. And Paul's commitment was simple and you can see it on the next slide. 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 2 Corinthians 5, we have our ambition, whether at home or absent, dead or alive, to be pleasing to him because we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Because of that, Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom in order to present every man complete or mature in Christ. And Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I hope that is your motivation in life. And every single time you see the word Paul in the New Testament, remember everything that I just said. <laughs> I hope that gives you at least a, a glimpse of the biography of who Paul was. Yes, he was evil and a murderer for a portion of his life. And God radically transformed him and made him the greatest missionary of the first century. And only heaven will be able to tell us how many people became Christians because of Paul's unrelenting faithfulness to advance the kingdom of God not his own name until the moment of his martyrdom. If you remember anything or if you want to imitate anything, imitate that last verse because that summarizes very succinctly what life is all about. And if you live that way, only eternity will be able to recall the way you've shaped eternity through your life. Let me pray for us. And I hope that gives you some, something to talk about. Lord God, we thank you for Paul, for his life and for the death that he died, leaving us an example to follow. Thank you that he was able to say, this one thing I do, I pursue Christ. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain because I finally get Christ. I pray for every single person here 
those who might not be walking with Christ, who have not recognized Jesus as Savior because they have not repented of their sin against Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who works in our hearts, leading us to repentance. So I pray that he would do that in every single heart that has not submitted itself to Christ. For those of us who are yours, help us to examine ourselves daily to see if Christ is in us, to see if we're actually as committed to Christ and his kingdom as Paul was. He wasn't a saint. He wasn't perfect. And yet you've used a man who existed for the sole purpose of destroying every Christian and transformed him to make him the greatest advocate and one who advanced the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we're beneficiaries of that because of his legacy. I pray this to the honor of your name. Amen.